Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I wish you the happiest of Halloweens. This most special time of the year is deserving of a special episode, and I try to mark the occasion in style, as well as offering something a little different. Now, we spend all year reading scary books, but to me, and this might be sacrilege, nothing says Halloween like a horror movie. Turn the lights down dim, popcorn or your treat of choice to hand, surround yourself with other people for comfort, or as in the case of my wife, sequester them safely in a different room with a rom-com. That's Halloween done right in my book. So I thought I'd dip a toe into the cinematic side of things just this once. But because I try not to do anything half arsed I invited Britain's most famous film critic and horror specialist Mark Kermode to talk about some of the greatest horror movies of all time. Now, I am aware that there are a million horror movie podcasts already out there. That's not what I do, and I don't ever want to slide too far from the bookish heart of this show. Thankfully, though, Mark has love and expertise in literary horror himself. He's a doctor of the damn thing. So when I asked him to come up with his favourite book-to-film horror adaptations and the reason why he loves them, he took the challenge with relish. You will all have seen some of these movies and read some of the works that inspired them. Others may be new to you, but but Mark is the best in the business at what he does, and that may or may not include Mickey Rourke impressions. Keep listening, you'll find out. But hopefully he will shed some new insights on old favourites, or get you itching to seek them out for the first time. I'm just along for the ride this week, guys. Here we go. To a small booth in the dark recesses of the BBC, where the power of Christ and Mark Kermold compels you to listen. Let's talk scared. Well, hi Mark, and welcome to Talking Scared. Thank you. It's a weird, nerve-wracking thing to speak to someone who doesn't know me, but who I feel I know so well. Um, For those who now think I'm a stalker, let me explain. Mark is the UK's most prominent film critic, listeners from overseas. Um, He has a long-running show that's essentially become the next best thing to a truly benign cult. I've been listening to it now for about 14 years. Uh, It's an odd thing to speak to someone so famous, but also to be fully aware that they have had a new boiler fitted recently. It's the Halloween special. I like to try and do something a bit different. Normally we talk about books, This year, I thought I'd get you on because you're a film critic of all stripes, but with a particular fondness for horror. Yeah. Uh, And I thought we could talk about your favourite book-to-movie adaptations. Sure. Anyone who knows you will kind of already guess what number one may be. Yeah. Before we leap into the films, I think there is a distinction to be made at the start between favourite and best. Do you agree, or is this also your list of best horror movies that are made from books? Uh, look, I think everything. Is, I think all forms of criticism are subjective. So, whenever anyone says best, what they mean is favourite. You know, I mean it's it, it it's just it's just how it is because there is no such thing as a best. So, I mean, I think you know, for example, I've said this a million times. I think The Exorcist is the greatest movie ever made. That means I also think it's my favourite movie. And when, whenever any film critic says to you, "Well, this is the list of my." You know, I think the best movies, what they really are telling you is, is either what, what are their favourite movies or what they think they should list. So, like, maybe if somebody says Citizen Kane, it could be because they actually do love Kane or it could be because they've been told that that's the greatest movie ever made. So I don't really distinguish. I think um, it just the reason I would shy away from best is just that there's a load of stuff that I haven't seen. I mean, you know, my 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 choices are just defined by what I've seen. So I don't know what the best in the world is because I haven't, you know, there's so much I haven't read. There's so much I haven't seen. But other than that, best and favourite are kind of the same thing for me. Okay, that is a bit worrying because horror aside, my favourite film of all time is Forrest Gump, which leaves me open to uh, to some criticism. Oh, I like Forrest Gump. <laughs> oh, good. I remember being really cross when Forrest Gump came out and there were all these really snarky articles about how Forrest Gump was, you know, reactionary and how it was uh, this kind of, uh, I mean, it was compared unfavorably to the kind of Frank uh, Capra school of filmmaking. 
And I remember there was a particular piece by an American writer, sort of satirical writer, who said this whole thing about basically, if you like Forrest Gump, you are a reactionary Republican or Tory or whatever. And I remember being really cross about this at the time. And then later on, talking to Danny Boyle about it. And Danny Boyle said, all I'll say on the subject of Forrest Gump is this, any film that begins with a woman sleeping with the headmaster of the local school so that her so that her son, who has learning disabilities, can get a proper education. Anyone who thinks that is a conservative movie is an idiot. And I agree. <laughs> I shall take that with me in future. I've always been a little bit ashamed of that of my favourite film. So, no, no, yeah, it's a great film. It's a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great film. Don't be ashamed of it. Embrace Forrest Gump. Excellent. That's that's a god on the t-shirt. I think favourite is a more interesting question than best, regardless of whether sure. they are the same thing, because it says as much about the person being asked the question as it does about the film, you know. So yeah. um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I hear you talk about the films you love so often, but you so rarely have the time to really expand on why you love them. And I thought we could devote an hour now to kind of getting into that. Because sure. I'm fascinated. I know a lot of people will be. So without any kind of further hesitation, let, let's jump in. Are you going to go in order of... No, I mean, look, I think I think let's just leap in. And I think let's start with The Exorcist because it's the elephant in the room and because there's no point in counting down to it because everybody knows. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've said it so many times. Okay. So, I mean, for me, quite apart from the fact, you know, I started saying The Exorcist is the greatest film ever made in the, you know, in the 1980s and everyone thought I was joking or an idiot. And and then I kept on saying it, and then finally people people kept saying, "You surely you mean the best horror film ever made?" And I said, "No, no, I mean the best film ever made." Um, and slowly over the years, over the kind of you know decades that I've been saying this, people have they don't agree with it, but they've come to realise that I'm not joking. I do mean it. I mean, I have I really have obsessed about that film so massively, you know, throughout my life, and I I still go back to it regularly. I still think it's it is the greatest film ever made. And I don't mind whether anybody else thinks that. What I what I object to is being corrected when people say, you mean the greatest horror film? I say, no, I don't. I mean the greatest film. I mean, the, in terms of everything that that film does, the way in which it does it, the time that it came out, the innovation that's involved in it. I mean, just as a technical, as a technical work, it's second to none. If you if you take apart the soundtrack of that film, it is one of the most complex avant-garde soundtracks I have ever heard. If you look at the way in which people talk now about special effects, if you look at what were the, you know, there were physical effects back then, how much they pushed the boundaries, how much Marcel Vecuter, who was the the guy who was doing the physical onset effects and Dick Smith was his, with his makeup, pushed the boundaries of what was possible on film. If you look at the way that film is edited, I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a mainstream blockbuster, but it has the most unbelievably avant-garde editing, particularly in the dream sequence, which is, you know, less than a minute long and is is basically edited like some kind of weird European art house. You know, it's just so surreal, it's untrue. In terms of, you know, where it sits in horror, I mean, obviously I'm a huge horror fan and it, it was the thing that kind of at a single stroke knocked out the possibility of anybody making a hammer horror film in the near future because it kind of, it ch it changed the game. And some people actually take against it because of that because... Um, you know, in the same way that when Jaws was a huge hit, you know, Roger Corman said, well, what, you know, what is Jaws if not a Roger Corman movie with a budget? So just as, just as a, as a, as a film, but I think as a, as a book adaptation, it's, it's as close to perfect as you can get. And the reason for that is that it's written by William Peter Blatty, who was a screenwriter and a novelist. And he had written the novel, obviously, but he had a, uh, his, you know, he had a background in comedy. And he had made a pretty good name for himself as a comedy screenwriter and as a writer of kind of quirky, odd novels. And he was a very, I mean, he, was, he became a friend of mine and I, I you know, I still miss him. Um, but The Exorcist was the thing that he had wanted to do. And he never really had the opportunity to do it until, you know, 1969, 70, when he finally sat down to write it. It was inspired by a, a case that he read about in the Washington Post in, uh, 1949 that is now largely debunked i mean is now almost well not almost certainly is certainly not a case of demonic possession it was a it was a, a a report of a case of a boy in mount rainier who had been possessed by a demon and um had then been exorcised and had been better after the exorcism and bill read this when he was at college and he 
became fascinated by it because he thought, well, you know, if there are devils, then there are angels. And if there are angels, then there is a God. And he was brought up by, you know, he was educated by Jesuits and he was, uh, he was, he had a very strong Roman Catholic faith, but he was somebody who was always searching for answers. And so he thought this, this whole thing about, this is a newspaper story of a case of demonic possession in 1949. This is a real thing. And so he originally wanted to do it as a as a factual book. The the priests involved didn't want that. The family didn't want any publicity. And as I said, it is now pretty much debunked. When I when I spoke to Bill about it, he said that he still he still believed that the case was real. But you know, so much has come out since then. It it even when I was writing, and I've got this with me. This is my this is my BFI film classics book about the Exorcist, which was originally published in 1997. This is now the sort of third or fourth edition of it. And um, and it's got the very beginning of it a copy of that. That's the that's the news story. So that is the news story which says priest frees Mount Rainier boy reported held in devil's grip, and that was the story that started it all. It doesn't matter that it's not true. What matters is that Bill Blatty thought it was true, and he thought this is evidence of tangible transcendence in the real world. And then when he couldn't get the permission to write it up as a factual book, he wrote it as a novel. And he had a clear reason for writing the novel. Yes, it was a work of entertainment. And yes, it was meant to thrill and excite. But it was also meant to absolutely convince people that there might be something other than this, that the world may not just be physical, that it may be spiritual, that there may be demons and angels. And um, and Bill did absolutely believe in demonic possession. I don't. But, you know, that doesn't matter. Quite often... You can love things. You can love works that you know. You, you don't have to share the, the philosophical view of of the author, um, and so he you know he wrote the book and he wrote the book with a single mindedness that I I kind of struggle to find in some other authors. It's beautifully written. Friedkin, William Friedkin, the director, read the book, loved it. Bill Blatty gave him his first script. Friedkin hated it because it wasn't the book. And so they sat down and they just went through the book with a marker pen. And I know this because I've actually got a copy of the book they went through. I've got a photocopy of the whole book with Bill's, Billy's marking on it. This, 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 this. And then they arrived at a script that was so faithful to the novel. And the novel was already cinematic because it had been written by somebody who had a background in screenwriting. The problem always as Bill Blatty was concerned was how would how on earth would you film it you know there was stuff in the novel that you just thought how would you ever put that on screen and the genius of what William Friedkin did was to go well I love this story and I love the way it's written and I want to film this book I want to film this book I want this book on screen and yes there are several changes between the novel and the and the book because this you know the film is two hours long two hours eight you know if you take the director's cut the, the producer's cut the writer's cut actually um but it's it's a brilliant work of editing it is an absolutely brilliant work of editing you know take out the carl and elvira subplot okay that's gone take out a lot of the stuff with kinderman okay that's gone it's a really brilliant work of editing and which, which means that when you read the book and then you see the film it's quite possible to read the book and see the film and think they're the same the first time you see it then you realize that there's so much there's so much else going on in the book because the book is you know several hundred pages long and you couldn't read the book in 2 hours you could read the book in a night incidentally um so i just think it's a pretty much perfect in the adaptation of book to film and as i said in this this BFI film classics thing that I wrote. I'm, you know, I'm, really, I'm still really proud of. It's only a slim volume, but it's it's part of their film classic series. And I, you know, during the course of all my Exorcist research, you know, I got to know Billy Friedkin and Bill Blatty very well. I, you know, I, sort of, I I've got a copy of the editor's cutting script of the film. I've got the thing of the, you know, I've gone, I've taken that thing apart, mm-hmm. and I've put it back together again. And it, unlike many things, you take them apart, you put them back together again, they don't work anymore doesn't make any difference. I've worked on The Exorcist for years. I've done, you know, The Fear of God, the TV documentary, which incidentally is coming back to BBC Four for Halloween, the long version, the 75-minute version, which I made in 1998. 98, I was much younger. You know, we spoke to everybody and we met the dummy and we, you know, spoke to the special effects guys and we met Linda Blair and all the rest of it. It doesn't make any difference. You put the film back together again, it works. And the novel is the same. You know, Billy Friedkin said at one point, you know, it's like Fitzgerald, the way in which it's written. And I know people people will be listening to this and go, don't be ridiculous. It is. It's beautifully written. Mm. Bill Blatty was a great writer. If you don't believe it, read Legion, which is a beautifully written book. Read 
you know, the original ninth configuration, Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane. I mean, the, he wrote beautifully and humorously and weirdly. I mean, he was a strange writer. I think Legion is just a wonderful, a wonderful work of writing. And I love his sentence constructions and mm-hmm. I love the film. Let me ask you, because obviously your fondness for that film comes across strongly, but everything you said then was technical. Everything you pointed out was about the editing and the score and all that. Does it still, or did it ever, hit you on a purely emotional level? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that's how it all began. I mean, it began as a purely emotional thing. I mean, that's what I mean when I say you take it apart and you put it back together again, and it just works. I don't mean it works on a technical level. I mean, it works on an emotional level. Yeah, it absolutely. When I read the book and when I see the film, it absolutely grips me. I, you know, and I've, it, that's always been the case. I mean, weirdly enough, when I was a kid, when it came out, I was too young to see the film. So of course I got the book and I read mm-hmm. the book. And then I read the book about the making of the film, which is called William Peter Blatty on the exorcist, which has got his original screenplay and then a transcript of the film. And of course I got every, you know, uh, horror movie magazine that had articles about the film. By the time I finally saw the film, which was four years later, because back then X-rated films, you couldn't just walk into. You know, I mean, nowadays everyone's got access to everything. Back then, if a film, there were certain films, particularly Clockwork Orange, Devils, um, Exorcist, you know, cinemas really did bother whether you got in or not. I remember Danny Baker saying that Clockwork Orange was the only X film he ever got turned away from because he was a kid. But yeah, when I finally saw it, I knew the film off by heart before I saw it because I'd read the script and I had seen the stills and it didn't make any difference. None of that made any difference. The minute the film started, it was like somebody cast a spell and it's absolutely fundamental to my personality that that film works for me. It's it's so cool to listen to someone who loves something that innately and intensely. Cause I, the only thing that hits me with anything near that resonance um, is Stephen King's it. Mm-hmm. The book, yeah. not the film. I mean, if I was going to go through my favourite films, um, Andy Machete's It would be up there, but only chapter one. I despise chapter two with a hate that will never die. Um, but chapter one, I just love because it it captures the, the tone and texture and feel of that book, which for me is a book that's about hope and bravery and love and friendship, way more than it is about a killer clown. And I know that you've said many times that The Exorcist is is a book that you find a great source of, or a story rather, in all its guises, that you that you find a source of consolation as much as horror. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that would surprise a lot of people who think it's the most bone-chilling, like, ur-text of horror they can, it, they can think of. Except that it is, you know, it is the classic case of the, you know, that it's the horror movie in which, as Bill Blatty said, at the end, you know, God is in his heaven and all's right with the world. Um, That's what it is. I mean, fundamentally at the heart of, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you choosing it. And I think Andy Muschietti's film, the first film is remarkable. I agree with you that I don't dislike the second film, but I, I, I think it doesn't have the same power as the first one. Of course, the whole thing about it is absolutely that it's like, the Goonies or it's like Stand By Me. It it is a story about, you know, children dealing with stuff and dealing with trauma. Um, The the thing with The Exorcist is it is a a story written by somebody who is searching for proof of God and finds it. And in in the story itself, you know, Karis is really kind of blatty. You know, Karis is this person who he's a priest and he's but he's he 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 loses his faith because he loses his mother and um and you know and of course bill was very you know very uh, bereft at the loss of his own mother and this this um you know this priest is looking for proof that his faith is not nothing and then this thing this horrible thing happens and it's the evil is the crucible of good that during the course of this thing he is forced to confront that his faith might be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the great irony of The Exorcist is that uh, Chris McNeil is an atheist and she wants him to perform an exorcism and he's a priest and he doesn't. Because, you know, that's the that's the central gag at the heart of The Exorcist is that it's the person who doesn't believe in God who wants him to perform an exorcism because everything else has failed. Yeah. And the priest doesn't want to do it because he doesn't believe that it that, you know he thinks it's it's a silly thing and I, I absolutely love that irony that it's that's the that's the way it goes and of course you know the key moments if you're somebody who you know chooses to 
you know, to think about that film a lot. The key moments are not to do with Reagan. The whole point is it's not to do with Reagan. That's why Exorcist 2, The Heretic, the John Borman movie, is the worst film ever made. I mean, it's an absolute <laughs> act of stupidity because it's not about Reagan. Reagan's story is is not the centre of that film. The centre of that film is Karis, and arguably the centre of that film is Ellen Burstyn's Chris McNeil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can make an argument in the novel that actually it's Carl and Elvira, because as a result of the possession, what happens is that Carl and Elvira are reunited, which is a subplot, which isn't in the film, but it's in the novel. And it's kind of one of those other indicators that all there, there is a reason that all this is happening that you can't see. And, and it's actually to do with the fact that the arc of that film is Karis loses his faith. Karis regains his faith. The end. Well, You've got me convinced. Let's uh, let let's move on. So that's one down. The big the big one done. Yeah. What, what's, what else is on your list? Well, let's do. I mean, see, this is a novella. It's a short story. So let's do. Uh, Don't look now. The Daphne du Maurier. Um, Don't look now. The film is just is brilliant. I'm a Nick Rogue fan anyway, and I think that you know just as a as a work of sublime filmmaking, Don't Look Now is extraordinary. Again, a lot of it comes down to the way that that film is edited, the way that Nick Rogue thinks in images that overlap each other one of the things with the film of the exorcist is those things that people talk about as being subliminals Mm -hmm. i asked um, william Friedkin about them and he said the whole idea for that was the idea that you're walking down the street and as you're walking down the street your mind is picking a card out from somewhere else and all the time everyone is thinking of two different things and something can just flash into your mind that appears to have nothing to do with what's going on but it maybe it does and the whole way that nick rogue's filmmaking works is that he's constantly making almost jazz style connections between you know these things overlap so at the very beginning of don't look now you get this horrendous sequence in which christine drowns and while she's drowning her father is her father is talking to her mother and they're talking about something which appears to be irrelevant which is the curvature of water and then christine goes into the water and donald Sutherland is looking at this slide and what appears to be a blood stain comes onto the slide and and then he rushes out and she's drowned and there's that terrifying slow motion sequence with that amazing music by Pino Donaggio as he pulls Christine out of the water and they then go to Venice which of course you know people say you know under the circumstances Venice is not a good choice and (laughs) he then becomes obsessed with visions of Christine he sees a char- character in a red coat that he thinks is maybe is Christine. And he also meets somebody who is psychic who says that they can see Christine. And the construction of it is brilliant. Okay, So at the beginning of the film, Christine goes into the water. And for the rest of the film, Christine is coming out of the water. Okay, it, So they're in the streets of Venice, and this figure is running along the sides of the canals. And again, as with The Exorcist, and I'm, this is a bit of a plot spoiler, but you, we're way beyond that. The central gag in Don't Look Now is that he's psychic and he doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. And the and it, so again, he's the person, he, when, when, he, when these psychics say to his wife, we can see Christine, Christine is trying to warn you of something. Christine is trying to warn you of something. And she believes and he doesn't. And the reason that he doesn't believe is that he doesn't believe in, you know, Ooga Booga. And yet the whole construction of the thing is that actually he, he, is, he is being led by something that he doesn't understand. And he actually is psychic and he sees something that hasn't happened yet. And he doesn't realize that he has, that it hasn't happened yet. And that's the thing that, that gets him. The title don't look now is really clever in the novella. The line is, don't look now, but I think someone's trying to hypnotize us. And they're in a cafe and they see the sisters. It says, don't look now, but someone's trying to hypnotize us. Well, don't look now is a genius title. Don't look now. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're, what you're seeing is not now. What you're seeing is something that hasn't happened or something that had happened. Or, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a brilliant title. And then the other thing that is remarkable about Don't Look Now is that the novella, she doesn't drown. In the novella, she dies of meningitis. And the genius of Don't Look Now, the film, is that that thing that you think must absolutely be in the DNA of the story isn't. Ah, Christine has died before the story begins. This is the film in which I've got kind of the least 
knowledge yeah. of. I've only seen the movie once, probably 10, 15 years ago. I haven't read the source material. Um, and you've, in just a few minutes though, you've actually made the film make a lot more sense to me because I got the basic bones and the structure and what was happening with the, the preconception and, and all of this stuff. But I'd, I'd, I'd never understood how... How do I put this? It always felt like the two strands of the narrative in the film, the grieving and the the, the psychic stuff. It always felt like that sat with oh, zero wow. connection against this little no, bit no, no, they're, with the serial they're abso- killer. They're absolutely I, connected. They're absolutely I, connected. And so it's a brilliant piece of script writing by Alan Scott and Chris Bryant, who did just did a wonderful job with that thing. But in the the thing is, in the Daphne du Maurier, it's kind of it's it's sort of satirical because as I said, the, the, you know, the payoff of the Daphne du Maurier thing is what a bloody silly way to die. It's like a shaggy dog story in which somebody who doesn't think they're psychic is, and that's what, that's what gets them. In The Rogue, it's all about grief. The whole thing is about grief, that it's set in motion by this going into the water of grief and then everything that happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it, I, that's what's such a, so genius about that film is that it finds something that's in the novella but not necessarily the driving force of the novella and it turns it into a real emotional thing, that it is a, it is about somebody literally living in their grief. And his desperate desire to see Christine you know, the whole thing is the psychics say, we can see Christine. He says, no, you can't. No, you can't. Of course you can't see Christine. And then he sees her everywhere. He sees her everywhere. And then the thing at the end, the punchline at the end, which, you know, but let's not, but, you know, but the punchline at the end is literally the story ends with what a bloody silly way to die that he realizes as he's, you know, at the very, very end, he realizes what's happened. And it's a gag. I mean, it's, it's literally a gag and what's yeah. the, the genius of what of what um scott and bryant have done is to take that and to turn it into something so that when you get that you know what people refer to i think rather crassly is the sex scene in don't look now that's that is the implication is that's the first time that that couple have made love since they lost their child and the reason that scene has become so you know people talk about you know oh uh, are they, aren't they? The only reason people have those discussions is because they believe in the characters and therefore they believe that they are. And of course that Mm. scene is temporally intercut. It cuts with them dressing with the, you know, so it right at the heart of that film is something in which two time periods are happening at the same time. So people talk about Chris Nolan and inception and Tenet and all that stuff. Yeah. Great. Love all that. Don't look now is doing it and it's not making a song and dance about it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the thing we don't want to know for me, I, as I say, it didn't work for me. I will go and watch it again because clearly I've missed the point. <laughs> but I remember watching it on my own. I, I would have been about 19. I was just at university. Um, and all I remember of that film is the awful opening scene. Yes, the, the drowning, yeah. Truly horrible. disturbing. Um, yeah. And then I remember the ending. And then I remember the scene of the seance with the two sisters. Yeah. And even now, I remember watching it and being completely unable to articulate, even to myself, why it made me so uneasy. Yeah, yeah. And I just felt so very frightened. Even now, I can't say why. Yeah. And um, and it's it's one of those films, in a way, much like The Exorcist, where it feels like something is baked into the celluloid that you cannot quite unpick. And it unpin. is, and that's. It's an incantatory quality, and that's why what Rogue is doing relates to somebody like Kenneth Anger, who actually thought of films as spells, which is also something which has been referred to about The Exorcist. You know, Billy Graham famously said that there was a satanic power in the celluloid of the film. I mean, the other thing that's worth remembering about Don't Look Now is that when it was first released here, the supporting feature was The Wicker Man. Yeah. I mean, The Wicker Man was the B-movie with Don't Look Now as the A-movie. So by the time you got to see Don't Look Now, you'd already seen... (laughs) Edward Woodward. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you know, what a what an absolute head trip that must have yeah, been. Quite. Wickerman also nearly made my list. Um, but yeah. Anyway, moving on. What's what's next for you? What's third? Yeah. So, well, let's go from there. I mean, the haunting. This is to do with really the haunting of Hill. I mean, if you're a Stephen King fan, you've probably mm-hmm. read Dance Macabre, and you know, and Stephen King says, and I think he's right that essentially the uber text of all modern ghost stories is the haunting of hill house 
And then what Shirley Jackson did was to kind of distill all the elements from ghost stories and turn them into, you know, this compact text that has then been filmed more than once. Um, the Haunting, the film, the original film, I think is brilliant because what it does is it takes something which is really essentially a fairly unfilmable novel and films it. Now, there have been other versions of The Haunting which are much louder and crashier and bangier and they're completely irrelevant and nobody cares about them. When we were doing Secrets of Cinema on horror, we were looking at, um, which I co-wrote with Kim Newman, you know, who's the great kind of horror maven. And we were looking at The Haunting and just looking at the way in which that film tells its story. I mean, the story of The Haunting is The Shining, or more correctly, The Shining is The Haunting. Somebody arrives at a building that is haunted, and it turns out that it's haunted by them. And in Peter Straub's Ghost Story, which I think is a wonderful book and made a rather hokey film, but I still like the film because I like the book so much, He there is a, there is a, a phrase that he uses, I've said this before, but this, what happens in Ghost Story is the set, what, this, one of the central characters becomes involved with a woman who may or may not be the ghost of another woman. And so it's Alma Mobley and Eva Garley. And there's a sequence in it in which he wakes up at night and his girlfriend is looking out of the window with, his, with her back turned towards him. And she says something. And he thinks that she says, I saw a ghost. And then later on in the book, he realizes that she didn't say that. What she said was, I am a ghost. And then later on in the book, he realizes that she didn't say that either. What she said is, you are a ghost. And then it says it was the central realization at the heart of every ghost story. And that is the central realization that's at the heart of The Haunting of Hill House. And it's at the heart of The Shining. And certainly the Kubrick film of The Shining gets that. I know that the film of The Shining is very, very different to the novel, but it the Kubrick film of The Shining is closer to The Haunting of Hill House than it is to the uh, Stephen King novel. And I just love the fact that it demonstrates that, you know, so much of what it does is to do with atmosphere. And I think it's a really intelligent adaptation of, you know, as I said, something which is which is really in many ways a a kind of classic, you know, you can't film this because so much of it is to do with with the way that the that the, the book is written. I did a thing for Radio 4 some while ago called um, With Great Pleasure, in which you, people read out extracts of my favorite books. And I got um, uh, Amelia Bullmore, who I've known from a long, for a long time, is a very brilliant actress, to read out some sequences from Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. And, and it was just mesmerizing, just listening to that, you know, being read because it's so, it's such beautiful writing. And then you see the uh, you see the Robert Wise adaptation, and you know you, the Nelson getting screenplay, and you go, okay, you what you've done, which is really clever, is that you've you've found something at the heart of the story. So rather than just doing a literal translation of the story, you found something at the heart of the story, and you found a way of representing it visually. So the genius of the film of the haunting is that it is a visual representation of a book, a book of words. You know, so the book is written in words and the film is written in images. It's not a film in which you quote large sections of the dialogue. It's a film in which you talk about the scene when she runs down the corridor and the house appears to bend. The sequence that we showed in Secrets of Cinema in which you see an image that you don't realize at first is actually reflected in a mirror. In which the film is telling you all the time, this is the story. But it's not telling you by a character telling you this is the story. It's the film is telling you this is the story because of the way the film looks, because of the way the film sounds, because of the way the film feels. And like Onibaba, which is just a brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant horror movie, which not very much happens on screen. I mean, there are some incredible images in it, but it's to do with the, with the atmosphere of it. It's to do with the way the film feels or, you know, arguably, you know, Eyes Without a Face, you know, Les Yeux Sans Visage. Again, it's to do with the feeling of the film. And I think I love The Haunting of Hill House as a novel. And I love The Haunting as a film. And they're two completely different things. I love both of them, which is why I've chosen this as a favorite book adaptation, because it shows the way in which a film can make something into something completely different. Well, the, the book has been discussed ad yeah, nauseum sure. on this show. I always ask someone, I, I always ask guests to recommend um, a book for listeners to read. And, and that, I think along with Stephen Graham Jones is the only good Indians is the, 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 the winner. 
the film would have yeah. been my number one choice. It's my all-time favourite horror adaptation, if, if not my favourite book to movie adaptation in any genre. Yeah. I think that there are two scenes in that film. that The bulging door, yeah. talk about visuals, the bulging bedroom door, and the the scene whose hand was I holding, even now has a has a, a kind of a, a charm to it, a, a horrifying charm to it that I've never encountered in, in any other film. I've never ha- I've never been frightened so much by implication as much as that scene. And what's genius about that is both with the door and with the hand holding, that the gag, and I do think this is quite often true with great horror stories, is that they you know they've got they've got a gag you know is is that holding hands with yourself is the scariest thing, and I. I I love that, and I love you know in the book, you know the the Oleanders, and when she's you know when she, she's mm-hmm. come again to Hill House, and she's running around the corridors, and she's being I mean that is so brilliantly evoked. It is so brilliantly evoked, and then it and it works so well to you know to the end when you 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 know what has to happen, and you know it's going to happen, and you don't you know it's 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 yeah it's just genius and. I really do think that that is a brilliant piece of writing. And I think that any filmmaker would look at that and go, well, I can't yeah. film that. It's just impossible. It's to, do with, it's to do with the writing. It's like films of The Great Gatsby. The, the biggest problem you're ever going to have is you either have a narrator reading the Nick Carraway narration or, or you go, how are we ever going to do this? How are we ever going to get these ideas on screen? And I do think that Robert Wise does a brilliant job of getting those ideas on screen. Have you seen the Netflix TV adaptation? No. Is it good? It's people love it. Okay, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> no, no, it's it. It's it's okay. It's it's a ghost which is draped along the bones of Jackson's novel, um, told in a very different way. Okay. It's very frightening in parts, but that isn't the same thing as saying it's good necessarily. You right, know? right, right. The cool thing that right. Mick Flanagan does is he yeah. does this thing where he hides ghosts in the shots that you can then find later. It's kind of like a game of supernatural where's Wally, but that isn't for me enough to to really uh, convert into a great experience. Yeah, it's nothing on the Robert Wise movie. Um, It is interesting, before we move on, it is interesting that you you say that Kubrick is close, Kubrick's The Shining is closer to The Haunting of the House than it is to Stephen King's novel. That's a way of putting something that I've struggled to really articulate for a long time. I'm not a fan of Kubrick's The Shining in any way, shape or form. But when you think of it in those yeah, yeah. terms, it makes a lot more sense. He's more influenced by the haunting than he is by his own source material. Yeah, I think it, I think it is, and I think that's. I mean, it's interesting as well because you know Stephen King writes so passionately about the haunting. Have you read Ghost Story, the Peter Straub novel? I've not only read it; I'm getting Peter on the show to talk about it at Christmas. Yeah. Oh it's... well, okay. Well, when you do, would you please give him my very best? Because I did my PhD mm. in horror fiction, and I pretty much wrote chapter of it on ghost story on ghost story and the haunting of hill house and you know and i still think and i cite that you know um i saw a ghost i am a ghost you are a ghost that is almost my life mantra so please tell peter straub that i think that is one of the the best the best descriptions of that that i've ever come across and can i I ask by the way what was your thesis actually on i've always wondered it was just modern horror fiction english and american horror fiction and it was basically an attempt to i mean it was an attempt to see, it was a very, uh, I mean, I'm looking back, it's a very botchy attempt to see whether horror fiction, modern horror fiction was as radical as people thought it was and what exactly was going on in terms of the way in which horror dealt with taboo issues. So to some extent, what I was doing was I was applying theories of pornography that Andrea Dworkin mm-hmm. had applied to pornography and I was trying to to to, to see whether or not you could apply the same theories to horror. And my answer was, well, not really, but it was an interesting exercise. Um, you know, it was really to do with whether or not horror actually demystifies things. I mean, a lot of it was to do with the way in which horror talks about taboo okay. subjects like death. And it was kind of, it was attempting in a very bodgy way. I mean, it was a long time ago in a very bodgy way to ask whether the, whether the way in which horror was approaching these subjects, not horror as a, you know, but very specifically English and American horror fiction in a very specific period, um, whether or not the way in which it worked was challenging or reinforcing established um, okay. taboos. Excellent. I've always wondered, 
Because mine, mine was on metafiction in contemporary horror. Well, yours is probably a lot smarter than mine, is all I can say. Just to link that, um, because of your love of The Exorcist, if ever you get the chance to read a book called A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay, okay. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Okay. It's an incredibly cine-literate possession novel that is literally about how how can someone be possessed these days within the confines of knowing what cultural possession feels like. And it's the most frightening book I've ever read in my life. Oh, it sounds interesting. I'll give it a read. Advertisement time. Bear with me, it'll be over soon and it's worth it. This episode is supported by Novelic, the brand new book app. It's designed to help you find books you love, pad out your TBR pile with recommendations based on your own reading tastes and alert you to new titles you may not have heard of. It's especially good for genre fans with curated lists, including one dedicated to talking scared, and they're based on human rather than computer algorithms. That all sounds like marketing spiel, I know, but I wrote it and it's all true. I use Novelit because it has none of the nastiness that can plague book networks. There are no reviews and no star ratings, which means you won't see a book getting negged just because some group of morons disagrees with the author's politics. It's pure recommendations from people like us who love stories. And you can find those people because it has a digital book club feature. Join a group of like-minded readers or start your own club. I have. The Talking Scared Book Club is live now for Patreon listeners, but there really is something for everyone. Novelic, another way for us to talk about horror. We've got two more to go and we're pushed for time. We've got 15 minutes to do these. So what are your last two? Well, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll rattle through one quite quickly. Um, Midwich Cuckoos, which is John Wyndham's uh, book that was filmed by Wolf Riller's Village of the Damned. Again, I'm talking about the original Village of the Damned, not the John Carpenter, terrible John Carpenter <laughs> remake. Um, I love John Wyndham. I, I, when I was a kid, I used to read John Wyndham a lot. And I love, you know, Chucky and Triffids. And, but Midwich Cookers was always the one that really worked for me. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it is, it's an alien invasion story, actually, but it's also a possession story, um, as indeed is Chucky, weirdly enough, um, that one day a village wakes up to discover that all the women in the village have become pregnant and they've become pregnant with these children who are a fifth column. They are an alien fifth column and the children have an intelligence that nobody understands. And they have a hive mind that if one of them knows something, they all of them know something. And during the course of the story, the older character Zella becomes to realize that they, that's what they are, that they're an alien fifth column. But the story is seeped in, in, misunderstanding and very much like um well you know very much like the exorcist in some way that it's a story about a child that knows more than the child should know and the parent being terrified of the child i mean one of the things i was writing about in my phd was pedophobia the fear of children why it is that a lot of horror but not there is a certain strand of horror which is to do with the fear of children and um so i love the book it's a page turner it's a science fiction story rather than a horror story the film is a horror movie rather than a science fiction movie. And the film has a particular place in my heart because it was filmed. Part of it was filmed on the grounds of the school that I went to. And so the, so Oldham house, which is in the school I went to, which is the haberdashers um, features in the film as the, I think it says the Grange. And as a result of this, they would show the film at my school. Uh, it's a you know black and white film. They would show it at the film society pretty much once a year. And I was terrified by it. Um, not least because, it, you know, it's that thing when you see something in a film and you go, well, that's literally around the corner. You know, that's literally around here. So the film always had this mystique about it. The fact that, you know, the area, the environs that it was all taking place in, it was like we were all living in the yeah. village of the damned. And when you're a school kid, that's a very powerful image. And I also really like, again, it's a, it's a, it's a filmmaker's thing that what what they do with the film is to take the central idea, the central paranoia about these children and make that the centre of the film. You know, Wyndham, again, was kind of like Daphne du Maurier, that he would, his stories were sort of shaggy dog stories, you know, the, the tube train that goes to hell. These are, these are punchline stories. But 
or what if stories. And I, I'm a sucker for that. And I particularly was a sucker for it when I was a kid. And I love the fact that the film of Village of the Damned absolutely captures the the essence of the book. And again, it's you know the book is the Midwich Cuckoos, which is a haunting yeah. title, I think. But Village of the Damned is a is a yeah. is a horror title, you know. So I I love it. And when Simon and I, Simon Mayo and I wrote the movie Doctors, we did a big section about about Village of the Damned. We were doing this movie Doctors tour, and we would always show that clip when the kids gang together to stop him going, you know, to, to go to London. <laughs> the kid goes, I don't think you're going to go to London. And that just became a phrase that we just used all the time, you know, because it, it was, it was so creepy. It was just so creepy. This blonde haired, you know, like neo Nazi looking kid saying, I don't think you're going to go to London. Leave us alone. All that's, it's, it's, it's kind of creaky and, but it's, it's great. It's just chills me even now to think about it. Whenever I see pictures of those kids, you know, there is something really, really eerie about them. So I think it's a, I think it's a great novel. They wore padded wigs, right? To make their heads look abnormally large. And it really does make them uneasy. I I, I don't think it's that the wigs are padded. I think it's, it's, they they look, I mean, they're Boris Johnson (laughs) wigs, basically. It's like a school full of Boris Johnsons, but yes, they. What it is is that they all in silhouette look the same. That's the theory that they. But but the thing that you can't avoid mm-hmm. is that they look yeah. like Nazis. They look like Aryan Nazis, you know. And so yeah, it's it's just that kind of just some you know it's that that thing that Kim Newman always refers to. What's wrong mm. with this picture? You know, all these healthy kids. What's wrong with this picture? They all look the same as what's what wrong I found. With it, though, one of the most. Know? disquieting things about that film because i watched it again last night when you gave me some indication what you're going to talk about i I need to kind of boss up on some of this stuff um and i watched it and the (laughs) the dispassionate nature of every adult in that film with the exception of david's mother yeah yeah. none of none of these men care about these children in any way even even zellaby who's the hero only cares for scientific reasons and it's like it's quite a, a, an indictment of the time. <laughs> but this is like, you know, people saying that, you know, The Exorcist is, a, is, a, is about people being terrified of kids and people hating kids. And there is something, I mean, what I wrote about in my thesis was, was that and folk mm-hmm. devils and moral panics, you know, the, the way in which there was a certain fracture in the generations that happened after the war and that the post-war generation with the emergence of the teenager and, you know, on the one hand, you know, mods and rockers and then counterculture and all that sort of stuff. You can tie that quite blankly, which I did to, you know, I mean, look at, look at Reagan in the exorcist. Okay. She's an, she's this lovely, you know, sweet little moppet. And then what happens? She starts, you know, hair, hair looks terrible. She starts swearing. She hits a priest, you know, she pisses on the carpet. I mean, you go, okay, she's a Woodstock kid. There's, you know, the same is true of the village of the dam that it's like, you're terrified of these kids because they appear to be smarter. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a clockwork orange thing going on there as well. These where you know, how do these kids know all this stuff? And the bit which is in the book when they show one of the kids, the puzzle, and then the other yeah. one knows how to do it, you know, with the puzzle box is really okay. Fine. Zellaby thinks it's fascinating. It's not fascinating. It's really scary. If one of them knows it, everyone knows it. And you can imagine that if you were a parent in that period, that would have struck a chord. I mean, uh, Stephen King says in Dance Macabre, everyone understands that Reagan McNeil would have responded enthusiastically to the fish cheer at Woodstock. You know, it's it is in the it's in the DNA of of the of the being frightened yeah. of kids thing. I'm aware that we've got like a limited amount of time, and I want to just finish by talking to okay. you about Angel Heart. So, Angel Heart is uh, is a novel which I love. And it's a film which I love. And I know for a long time people were very sniffy about it, but then people are idiots because it's a brilliant film. It has one fundamental flaw, which Alan Parker, you know, which is to do with the end and the the lighty up eyes, which Parker resisted and it was just something that was kind of forced on him. It's based on a novel by William Hjortsberg called Falling Angel. And the novel is genius. Again, it's ghost story. It's the same story that we've been talking about all the way through. It's that somebody, you know, somebody is haunting themselves. So the story is that, this uh, private detective, Harold Angel, is enlisted by a client called Lewis Cipher 
to track down a singer who he had helped early on in his career called Johnny Favorite. And the singer is disappeared and Lewis Cipher has a deal with Johnny Favorite, which was that in the event of his death, there would be some collateral that was passed to him. Johnny Favorite ended up in a in an asylum in Poughkeepsie, and now he's gone, and Cipher comes to Harry Angel and says, I want you to she says, Do you know this guy? And Harry Angel goes, oh, I've never heard of him. He says, Well, I want you to track him down because I all I need to know is I need to know whether he's alive or dead. And then as Harold Angel tries to find him, everyone that he meets gets killed and he starts to realize that he's being framed for the johnny favorite is following him um and he's being framed for the murders he's being set up that he's the patsy he's a fall guy and again if people haven't seen angel heart or they don't you you're you're a spoilery pod right not normally but with this one i think with these films are quite old crack on All I can say is it's Ghost Story, it's The Haunting of Hill House, it's The Shining, it's all of those things. And the genius of the of the film adaptation by Alan Parker is that the film adaptation takes a film that happens, takes a book that happens above and below the streets of New York, and it takes the new the below the street stuff and it puts it in a completely different location in which Harold Angel actually has to travel south and go into this whole other world. And that is an invention of the film that isn't in the book. And so it's really fascinating that what Alan Parker has done is to take a book, which he really enjoyed. It's a pulpy pot boiler page turner with a really fantastic ending. I mean, just an absolute drop dead ending. And he's gone, okay, but the thing is, this is this isn't happening above and below. It's happening here and it's happening over here. And so all the stuff that people think of when they think of Angel Heart, which is, you know, that sweaty, swampy, voodoo-y vibe, that's Parker doing something with with something which mm-hmm. isn't happening in that way in, in the novel. And it's a it's a brilliant piece of expanding and it makes it cinematic. It literally it makes it a visual experience that you understand that he's gone into this other world. He's gone completely into this other world. And I just think it's genius. It's Mickey Rourke's best performance. I mean, I think Mickey Rourke has, has just, I don't his career was really weird. He was brilliant. And then suddenly it just mm. tanked and he became an idiot. <laughs> and yet when you look at, you look at him in angel heart, it's mm. fantastic. The script is wonderful and a lot of the script is taken directly from the book but it's also its own thing the soundtrack is brilliant it's the most amazing haunting soundtrack and of course the soundtrack album has loads and loads of snippets of dialogue and it's here's the really clever thing the book has a motif in it in which harry angel is haunted by a tune that he is whistling and towards the end of the book he suddenly realizes why he's mm-hmm. whistling that tune. But in the book, you can't hear the tune because it's a written yeah. thing. Okay. And it's a, there is a beautiful way in which Parker has read that and thought that's, that's a film. You can hear that tune. And that is the central riff of the film. And it means the whole film is actually explained to you by a tune that you can't hear in the book, but you can hear in the film and you can hear in the soundtrack. And it's just breathtaking. It's absolutely breathtaking. And I, I remember when I, I saw, I saw the film before I read the book and I saw the film and I was just knocked out. And then there's a silly thing at the end with lighty up eyes, which was just put there by the film company for the idiots in the audience. Just like in case you haven't got this, you know, Anyone in the back row, just so you know, this is what's happening. And again, it's a shaggy dog story. It's got a, you know, it's got a, a it's got a gag. It's got a, literally a gag in it, but it's just brilliant. And it's that same thing that we've been coming back to time and time again, is that somebody, somebody's haunting yeah. themselves. I read the book before I saw the film. I saw the film for the first time right, last right. night. Right, and I loved it. I didn't. It's the weirdest thing. The whole transposition to the south to to Louisiana. Having read the book, I didn't expect that. But when you watch the film, even having read the book, it seems inevitable. 
that that would happen. And I, that, yeah. that's quite yeah. a strange thing, that something that is so different seems yeah. impossible not to do. Yeah, it's genius. It's really genius. And so I'm glad you've read it. So you, so you know what I mean, that bit when, he's, yes. when he suddenly realises the, 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 the thing. And then and, and in the film, it's, that, it's actually mm-hmm. a pre-existing track, which they found, which is great, which you can find on uh, Spotify. I play it over and over again because I find it so haunting. But the lighty up eyes thing, that was that is a botch, particularly the with the baby, which which is the worst bit of superimposition yeah, really you've is. ever seen for the very <laughs> you know the very final shot. It's just awful, and it's such a shame because up until that point, even the Robert De Niro moment is fine. You know, yeah, that only the soul is eternal, and yours belongs to me, and that is fine. But the lighty up eyes thing is just like, I'm sorry. And the fact that it's, it wobbles, yeah. it literally looks like some really terrible. And I, I, I interviewed Parker a couple of times about it. And I just went, what the fuck? And he went, I know. He went, yeah, I know. Kind of ruined boiled eggs for me as well, forever. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I love, you know, some religions say that the egg is the symbol of the soul. Would you like an egg, Mr. Angel? I got, I got to think about chickens and all that. I mean, all that dialogue, you know, there's a lot of religion mixed up in this thing. He said, would you mind? We're in church. Yeah. I don't give a fuck about church. I mean, it's, I, I, I just, I love all that stuff. I just, uh, Mr. Saifier is a foreign gentleman, foreign, foreign gentleman. Mr. It's just, I, I love it. I just, I just love it. And in fact, I showed it to my son just, the, just the other month because I've, you know, because I, 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 I quote the dialogue from it so much. I said, look, you should watch it. And he went, oh, yeah, it's good. It's good. You speak French? I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn, you know. So I guess you two didn't get along then, uh, you and Johnny. You and Johnny favorite. I mean, I can, <laughs> I can literally do the whole film for you, you know. It's, it's just, <laughs> you know what they say about slugs, Mr. Angel? No, what do they say about slugs? They always leave a trail of slime. Mark. And they're thinking again, because he goes, you know, if the money bothers you, no, the money, you bother me, Sif. Who the fuck are you, Sif? I just, I love all that. I love it. Anyway, Mark, okay. I, I think we've reached the end of your time that you've been allowed in the booth where you're recording this. Yeah, I'm going to get kicked out by the, by the world, world service. So anyway. I appreciate this so very much. For, for people um, who don't know, as I say, it's about 15 years of listening to you come to, to this moment for me. Um, but yeah, this is going out on Halloween. So I'm going to say a preemptive happy Halloween. Great. And Great, thank you. all the very best. Well, let me let, yeah. let me end on a plug. The, the long version of The Fear of God is back on BBC4 and it's on iPlayer now and it will be back on iPlayer. So if you get a chance, do see it. It's, you know, it's the documentary that I made about The Exorcist when I was a lot younger, but I, I, I had to watch it again when we did the 21st anniversary of it. And it's, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> I can vouch for it. I've seen so it several times. Do watch do watch it if you yeah. have a chance. Yeah, I can recommend it as a nice bit of alternative Halloween viewing if people have already worked their way through the five films you've you've talked at length about. But for now, the happiest Halloweens, thank you for making one of my ambitions come true. And Mark Commode, thank you for talking scared. Oh, it was fun. Thank you. So normally when I do this show, I have you, the listeners, at the forefront of my mind. I want to give you guys what you want, and you are the priority. But I'll be honest, this one was a (laughs) self-indulgence. That was an absolute delight for me. I'm really not sure how much people outside the UK are aware of Mark, but his stature over here really is massive. He's kind of a cult figure and someone who has been integral to the horror scene for me since childhood. Mark's always been attached to a certain kind of cult, transgressive cinema. And my earliest memories of him are in introducing horror films on Channel 4 in the 90s. He would pop up just before the movie started, give a short introductory lecture and then away he'd go. And I didn't know who the hell this guy was, but... I distinctly remember watching Cronenberg Shivers when I was worryingly young on my tiny bedroom TV whilst my parents pretended to think I was asleep. Mark introduced that film just like he did many others through my adolescence and and I can't disassociate his face and his voice and his opinions from my development as a, a twisted teenager and a budding horror fan. 
Now, I've listened to his radio show and, and the podcast that he does with Simon Mayo for nearly 15 years. Like I say, it's a benign cult, and I am a believer. So you can imagine my thrill when he agreed to speak to me. It, it felt very surreal to see him pop up on my screen. And if I sound a bit rattled at first, that's why. There's, there's no use denying it. And, and oh, how I winced when Mark went, oh, wow, at my criticisms of don't look now. Yeah, that, that one, that one twinged. <laughs> that said, being a fan doesn't mean I have to agree with everything he says. I'm not sure at all that I agree with the idea that favourite means best. For example, I can appreciate that The Exorcist is a better movie than The Exorcism of Emily Rose. It patently is in almost every way, but I prefer Emily Rose. And when it comes to books, you know, it is my favourite book. Is it a better book than Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath? Probably not, but I love it more, though I do love Steinbeck. And, and there is no way that Forrest Gump is a better movie than The Godfather. But, well, actually, actually, no. Forrest Gump is the best film of all time. And I will die on that fence. I start crying about 15 minutes into that film and then I just, I gently seep into a dehydrated husk over the next two hours. It's a masterpiece. Fight me. Back to horror, though. It is hard to argue with Mark's list. Most of the films he mentioned are absolute classics, part of the scaffolding of modern horror, with the possible exception of Angel Heart, which is the outlier but all the more interesting for it, because it really shows how individual films can make a huge impact on individuals, whilst leaving others going, yeah, it's okay. And that's the same for all storytelling art, I suppose, and it's the magic of, of all this stuff that we love. Mark's love for The Exorcist is well known, but it's, it's so well known that it's almost taken for granted, and I'd never really heard him talk about why he loved the film so much. The documentary he mentions, The Fear of God, really is worth checking out. It still stands as one of the most definitive docs about a horror film ever made. It's on iPlayer, if you have access. There's very little I can add to anything Mark said about these films, because he's so very thorough and articulate in his adoration. Interestingly, only one of the films he chose would make my own list, and if you want to hear what my list would be, I'll be releasing that on Patreon in the next few days. If you want to sign up for Patreon and support the show, as well as getting bonus episodes, you can find the link in the show notes or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. It's all massively appreciated. What are your favourite horror adaptations, though? I know I ask these questions every week with varying degrees of success and engagement, but come on, it's Halloween. Let's get together. Tell me, what movies would you have picked? You can tell me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me direct at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Um, and on, on, a, on a kind of different note, if you want to see a photo of my dog in his Halloween costume looking quite pissed off, then it's Instagram at talking underscore scared underscore pod. I hope you're all having a wonderful Halloween weekend or, or just a nice weekend if you don't partake in the festivities. I'm here, back in the UK after my holiday. I'm sunburned and jet-lagged and feeling distinctly like it cannot possibly be the end of October already. I'd give anything to be in the US right now, enjoying a proper balls and all Halloween as opposed to the emaciated version that we try with over here but my neighbour's kid has asked me and my wife to come trick-or-treating with her Ted has got his spider costume and tonight I'm watching a double bill of The Others and The Babadook with my wife that's part of our contractual obligation of one night of horror movies per year that we established before our wedding so it's not all bad plus I had a real ego boost this weekend when I was consulted for an article in The Guardian on the current state of horror fiction. Alison Flood is the author, and when she reached out to me, it felt like a, a bit of vindication that this show is getting noticed and being taken seriously. And I was also really happy to have the chance to shout out some of the guests and their books and, and to talk about how exciting horror currently is, especially in terms of diversity. 
You can read that article on the book section of The Guardian. It's called Chapter and Curse. Is the horror novel entering a golden age? I would say it is. Because I'm a complete narcissist, I've also included the link in the show notes. But ignore the comment section. It's full of idiots claiming that horror is boring or burned out or yawn, a sign of depravity. People who basically think the genre peaked with Bram Stoker. And I bet they're all having a lot of fun this weekend sticking razor blades in toffee apples. Fuck them. We'll keep going regardless. I'm back in just a few days with another episode. Serendipitously, it's with Kim Newman, Mark's friend and the man that he called a horror maven in our conversation. Kim's joining me to discuss his new Hollywood set horror novel, Something More Than Night. And it's an absolute charmer. Until then, though, turn the lights off, put your feet up and check whose hand you're holding. Read good books, watch good films. And remember, it's good to be scared.